Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 158 of the podcast, the topic is the real world beyond sustainability. Our guest is Dr. John Ehrenfeld, industrial ecology pioneer, ex-MIT researcher, and author. In this conversation, we talk about how reducing unsustainability still does not create whatever it is we agree should be sustained, and how the significant problems must be attacked at the roots, not merely at the level of symptom, by taking up a normative worldview that he calls flourishing. We discuss his recent book, The Right Way to Flourish, Reconnecting with the Real World, which came out on Rutledge in 2019. And this book deserves a wide audience for its deeply considered vision of how a new paradigm beyond the eco-efficiency implicit in how most of us currently understand sustainability. We discuss a number of thought leaders, including philosophers such as Martin Heidegger and neuroscientist and psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurize.org slash episodes. These are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors, and to check them out, go to sponsors at futurize.org slash sponsors. Before you do anything else, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org. Thank you so much. Let's begin. John, how are you today? I'm, uh, I'm fine. It's a bit uh, crummy out there. It's raining. Uh, you may be able to hear the rain in the background. Well, I, I love the rain. Uh, it's great for my garden. Well, I know. I just planted some new uh, herbs and annuals. Uh, two days ago. So it is good here too. Yeah, I was thinking a person like you would have a garden that, that it's almost goes without saying, correct? Uh, well, I, I'm not, not so sure. But uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I have been gardening up here in Maine for, you know, 40 years. So yes. Right. So John, you started out as a chemical engineer from MIT and have had a long career in the environmental field. Uh, and are among the fathers of the field of industrial ecology. You have authored over 200 papers and several books. The last book, uh, or one of the two last books, uh, they were both about flourishing, the right way to flourish, and reconnecting with the real world, um, and frameworks for understanding what flourishing means. And then I, I know you've taken up poetry. That's fascinating. Tell me about your path through meandering these thoughts. And, you know, we'll talk about sustainability deeply and the problems with that notion and, and, and how you got there. 
Okay. I'm at MIT. That's not an obvious way to end up with a philosophical perspective on flourishing and, and authoring poetry. Um, well, I can tell you a story. I'm not sure it's the right one. One, one, one sort of gets from here to there by a, a paths that are, that are not always uh, obvious or certainly predetermined. But, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. After I left MIT, I, I spent about uh, 10 years doing what uh, uh, PhD chemical engineers do. I, I, I did just plain old research. And, uh, uh, but along the way, I, I started, I, I got doing some projects that, that actually turned out to be environmental. Uh, I, I was, uh, but initially didn't have any um a clear connection. Uh, in the mid '80s, I was working for a company, and uh, our market collapsed. And I was sent out to scout a new business, and uh, I did. Hmm. This company hired had a lot of meteorologists, had some atmospheric chemists. And I discovered this this emerging idea of, of, of environment. It was in the air. It was before the the, the 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 laws have been passed, but it looked pretty good. And so I <clears throat> basically did a market survey and brought it back to the company, and they turned it down. And not only did they turn it down, they said, there's no room for you anymore, John. So I was out looking mm -hmm. for a work. Well, I, I believed it. I, I really thought that this was going to happen. <clears throat> so I got, uh, wrote a prospectus. I went out, I got some money, and I started a company to do work in air pollution hmm. research. And right. I did that for for some, I don't know, three or four years. Uh, we were really one of the very early companies to, 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 to specialize in the area of environment. Hmm. Well, after that, I, I just sort of bounced around doing consulting, spent some time running a small water resources agency, but I, I've never left really the, the field of environment uh, since those days. And it was purely serendipitous. If I hadn't, if our company had kept its market, I, I'd be doing a lot of defense-oriented work still probably. So that that's really how I started. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> But then th throughout this, you uh, you came upon this perspective of industrial ecology. I wanted us to, to start there a little bit, just because it's a field that is somewhat understandable to engineers, because, uh, and, and you'll explain it better than me, but ecology isn't necessarily a field of engineering, un unless you make it so. And the field of industrial ecology is a little bit that. It takes a systemic view on ecology, but in a language that in engineers can understand. Am I am I correct? Um, sorry for the phone, but there's nobody here but me. I, I put no it problem. in the room, but it, it'll, it'll stop in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, industrial, industrial ecology, uh, it, it is an engineering field. It started generally in, in, in engineering departments, um, but I got into it kind of, again, uh, I'd say uh, serendipitously, not with any intention. <clears throat> when I was at MIT, 
one of the very first projects, a large project, which had to do with environment, was to study sort of the global pathways of chlorine. This was an anticipation of the, the uh, uh, UN's 90, 1992 Rio conference, the sort of first big summit about environment. Mm -hmm. And a group of people in Norway who make a lot of chlorine were concerned that there would be a ban on chlorine. Greenpeace had, was going to bring a, a, a proposal to that conference to ban certain kinds of chlorine. So they got us at MIT to, to try to determine where it was, what its values were, how important it was, etc. Hmm. And, and uh, to do that, we developed a methodology to really track the flows of chlorine globally. Um, it was really a very early example of doing industrial ecology. Industrial ecology see, sees the, the sort of metabolism of, of production as a series of interconnected flows. Mm -hmm. um, chemical engineers like me are, are familiar with that. One of the very first things we learn as a chemical engineer is material balances, industrial stoichiometry, how, how, how one material gets into others where it goes, how, it, how it's made and how it's used. Hmm. Um, so um, about that time, a couple of guys at General Motors published an article in Scientific American that defined industrial ecology. They said that you can look at, a, at an economy, at the material economy, and see it as, as an ecological system, a bunch hmm. of flows. <clears throat> and uh, I got very interested in that and started uh, uh, with a small group, maybe <clears throat> oh, 25 people globally who, who saw this as, as bringing more systemic uh, rigor to the study of, of material flows, which is really central to understanding pollution. <clears throat> so that sort of paralleled my, my, my more focused interest in, in environmental research, which I was doing at MIT. Hmm. Uh, I'd say it was parallel, but, but, but relatively well-connected, Trond. What, what was this center at MIT? So you spent a number of years there, uh, and I guess this coincides with, with uh, your, your interest in industrial ecology. What was that center? Well, I, I, I came back to MIT, what, 30-some years after I, I had my degree, <clears throat> and to run a project that was uh, sort of interdisciplinary or interdepartmental. So my home at MIT was in a, in a center for, for uh, technology, uh, CTPI Center for <laughs> Technology Policy and Industrial Development. It's a long right. time ago. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's one acronym. And one acronym becomes looks like every other. Um, it was an interdepartmental uh, center at MIT that really looked at sort of the interface between technology and and, and society, hmm. but mostly from an engineering point of view. I understand. Um, but what I did there eventually was to set up a, a research program called Technology, Business, and Environment, which eventually occupied basically all my time. <clears throat> yeah. 
uh, and and it, it was a program to uh, examine the, the the increasing load of regulatory pressures on corporations. Uh, what what how are businesses responding to the the environment through the regulatory process? Mm-hmm. Because that's basically how business saw their role was to do whatever the regulations say and not a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent those those years in that department. It was a uh, I'd say it was a boon for me. It was a, a interdepartmental. Uh, I was a, a, a adjunct. I, I had a sort of appointments in in number of faculties, uh, and it enabled me to work across uh, disciplines to engage a bunch of faculty. So we had one of the more interdepartmental, interdisciplinary programs going at MIT, which is appropriate mm-hmm. because environmental studies really requires that kind of uh, of capabilities. So, uh, uh, John, we'll, we'll move to, to, to Flourish in a, in a second. I just okay. wanted to close uh, asking you about uh, sure. your, your activity then running the uh, International Society for Industrial Ecology. It's just interesting to me, whenever a new scientific field is formed, especially an interdisciplinary one. So one thing is your work at MIT, and you said you, know, you got to work uh, with multiple faculty a- across different departments. How is it to build a nascent field internationally and be, you know, instrumental in kind of like, I don't know, uh, herding the the cats or I don't know what the metaphor is. It's an interesting challenge, right? Because everyone in principle has their own venues and things and, and not, now you're building new ones. Yeah, well, what's, I mean, it was kind of a parallel. And, and while I was MIT, I was... Uh, uh, Using some of the ideas, that was a very, you say it was nascent, there were a handful of people. Um, and I must say, I don't remember the, the uh, chronology all that clearly. Uh, but during the, the late uh, 90s, uh, there were some informal meetings uh, globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there was a group in Japan, a group in Norway, Group in Germany, few few academics here. I, I'd say maybe forty people all told. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were writing papers, looking for places to publish them. There really weren't places to publish them. There was a great deal of, of sort of angst and 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 uh, pent up energy in this group. And. Um, Toward the time I retired, around 2000, uh, a small group, I'd say six or eight of us, met one time in New York at the New York Academy of Sciences and decided to start a society. I mean, we just said it's time. There's nobody else who really wants us, who can be our home. And uh, as you know, interdisciplinary uh efforts uh, kind of fall between the cracks of organized uh, academic scholarly work. So mm-hmm. we did. Um, we, we determined to do that. And I had literally just retired, probably within months. And so this group said, well, we need someone to get this going. And well, you know, how about you, John? <laughs> 
So I said yes. So soon after I retired, I took over the uh, job of, of getting an international society, a journal, uh, a field going, and spent uh, what, in that role about 10 years. Till it doesn't today. sound to, like a retirement job to me, John. Well, it was. It was a retire. It was a job that I could do because I did not have uh, all of the day-to-day right, uh, right. actions, and it was wonderful because it kept me immersed in 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 in, in what I love, scholarly work. Um, uh, we established an office at, at Yale that, that offered to to be a home, to be a place where uh, to uh, let a, an editor for a journal. So I traveled back and forth between my my home in in, in the Boston suburbs to Yale, uh, hmm. and uh, uh, a wonderful group. I could not have done what I did without the the uh, commitments of of, of, a, of an international group of people who who were uh, just delightful to work with, thoughtful. Saw this as potentially. Uh, having significant policy implications, uh, we all we all believe that you needed a systemic context if you're really going to t- put your arms around the environmental problems, the big environmental problems. Hmm. So. But John, after that, and this is uh, you know m- maybe to some people this is a lengthy introduction to the the real topic. But then, sometime during this period, you grew more and more frustrated with the concept of sustainability, uh, if I am correct. And I want you to explain that to us because, you know, here's a person that is in a certain way embedded a little to the concept. You had published on sustainability. You had built the field industrial ecology that, you know, it's not my field, uh, but it is a field that I understand ties itself somewhat to eco-efficiency, which is a little bit of a, has become a little bit of a synonym to sustainability. And now here comes your new work over the last decade or so. What is that about? And what is it about sustainability and unsustainability that you grew somewhat disillusioned with? Well, um, I'm hesitating because I, I the, 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 what, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. That, that, that always works. <laughs> <laughs> In the, uh, just before I retired from MIT, uh, I was taking some per, personal training courses, courses that, that, that are uh, here in the States, grew out of a program called EST, which was very popular in the 80s. Um, and I, I, and, and then I took, I was involved in, in some of the, the, uh, uh, follow-up kind of programs. These were, these were programs that, that were basically designed to, uh, well, what, uh, it's hard to, that's too long. Anyway, I was taking this program. Yeah. And it involved a couple of, of long weekends, and the final weekend one, there was a graduation, 
Well, this program is about sort of freeing the inner self. That, that maybe is the best way to put it, to, to mm-hmm. become authentic, to do things, uh, to, to get out of the stories and get out of the bad habits and so forth and so on. Everybody in the, this class of about 100 people uh, at the ceremony, in, one by one, got out of their chairs, walked up to the front of the room, turned to the audience and said something like, I am the promise that you know, there'll be peace in the world. I am the promise that my family will prosper. I got up fully with some smart-ass comment to make, and I walked to the front of the room, and I turned to this group, and I turned and I said, I am the possibility that human and other life will flourish on the planet forever. Hmm. Now, that's where it began. Hmm. And I know now what was happening. And we could get there. But I know that this program was really designed, without even knowing it, to get you into your right brain, back connected to the world, the the creative, authentic self that you are. And that was what was speaking there. Interesting. Well, we wrote those on our, our name tag, sort of, I am the possibility that. And we went around the room shaking hands saying, I am the possibility that. So, you know, buying this, really becoming committed to that. Well, I was. And so I left that. And I just stopped thinking the way I had and began to uh, really look at uh, what I had done. I brought a, a, a partially done manuscript when I retired and I was working on it. And I just said, no, I'm going to look at this differently. And, and, and I, I would say that's really what happened, Tron. In a, in a moment, Interesting. my plans changed, and, and I just sort of reconsidered uh, what I had, had been done. So let's talk perfect. about the first aspects of that manuscript. And, you know, yeah. it became a book, and I've read the book. Um, that, because that was, Flourish, a, that was Sustainability by Design. Yes. It's an early book. Oh, right. It was the earlier book. Well, I'm talking about uh, the the Flourish books. So Flourish, uh, I mean, I guess comes from Latin florer. I mean, it's a flower. Um, So to flourish, uh, you know, essentially is to blossom. Uh, So I guess that's why I was making the garden comment earlier. Um, So so you're, uh, and it actually, I I can relate to that. My my name, you know, means uh, to blossom or to thrive so i, I can oh, relate to wow, this idea <laughs> yeah tr- that's what trond means in old oh, norse okay so it's a th- it's a th- way of thinking that i've had with me certainly uh for a while but i i, I wanted to bring you back to i guess chapter one of of this uh flourish book the right way to flourish sure. because there, there's sort of two parts that i understand really uh joins this together one is your earlier thinking which was very philosophically um, inclined, uh, you know, you, you write about Heidegger and human ontology and a different way to be in the world. Right. Tell me how that thinking uh, got to be, because you have this very interesting critique in your book uh, of self-help, because it seems to me that you, the whole book you're struggling and you say, well, I, I should perhaps write a self-help book about uh, all these things, but most of these self-help books are too shallow or they lead in different right. directions. And then you have a whole 
new curriculum that you recommend, and a lot of it, so the fundamentals of flourishing seem to be philosophical. And, you know, there's a whole brain part we can get to in a second, but I want to get to the ontology part, because it's interesting to me. It's uh, perhaps a part of philosophy that's not so popular, I would say, you know, in the mainstream America. Uh, How did you get to that perspective, and what does it mean for people who might want to explore flourishing? Well, that has something to do with the same process that, that from which the idea of sustainability just sprang from my mouth. The, these programs had a lot of, of existential uh, foundations. Uh, they were really about being and, 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 and sort of that, that, and what, 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 what drove your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the 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 first the philosophy really I don't know so much is serendipitous sort of who do you read what books you have so forth and so on um, the, the 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 critique of that that um, has driven all this work the the concerns that were in the wrong sort of way of thinking about life. Uh, was a was a a, a um, I'd say a product of a of a quest to try to understand why we have gotten to where we were at that time, not so far into global warming, but still a mess. And uh, uh, the the inquiry led me to the the notion of of, of you know what. It, we're consuming most of the, you can go back and, and uh, one of the proximate see that one of the proximate causes of all forms of environmental degradation uh, have to do with the human consumption. You know, we're, we're taking stuff, destroying habitats and the goal by taking it out in the first place uh, and then mucking it up by, by uh, putting it back in, in, in the form of, of CO2 and pollutants and so forth. And uh, where did that come from? Well, it, it, it turns out that you, you can pretty much relate that to the, the Western idea of, of what it is to be human as a self-interested, but particularly needy human being, need. Mm-hmm. And that need has become uh, defined by economics and sociology and so forth, largely into the material, the need to get, consume, accumulate material goods. So, and, so that's where the growth so critique where that comes, comes from. Right. And then, so it, it is, okay, if we're going to change that, we really have to, is, is, is that, first of all, are we, are we such insatiably needy people? And if we are, hey, it's over with, it's, it, it, it's, if that's truly who we are, it's, I, I see no, hope other than eventually we will consume the earth and, and collapse. That happens to all, all species that, uh, that, that grow too much for their carrying capacity or habitat. But the, 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 the interesting thing about these existential ideas is that they say, no, they're, 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 there's another human being. Mm-hmm. There, there's a caring human being. That's the gist of, of Martin Heidegger's whole ontology that, that, that the, the authentic human is a caring human, and that inauthentic human is a product of our culture. 
And so there is a, a, a hope that we can make a shift from the needy to the caring. Well, that was what really grounded, as you say, philosophically, my early work. It's very interesting. And then in, in towards the end of that chapter, I believe, you, you write about something I just wrote a book about, uh, which is lean. And, and you say that lean as in being different and becoming part of the system. So again, you're relating this in your earlier uh, iteration of this before you got to the brain discussion. You're relating it back to, to industry again, I guess, because you, you're saying in order to think about changing a system, you kind of have to become part of the system. Um, I, I found that pretty interesting. So systemic thinking and systems thinking is not something where you can afford, I guess, to be outside the system. I just wanted to bring in one more thing, and I don't know that you use this term in your book, but uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Jevons paradox because that's yes, what I you're am. talking about. And I do right? use it. It is right. in the first book. Oh, I see. So that's where I, I, I guess I picked it up here. But anyway, you know, it, it, this is very challenging for most people who have this idea loosely that technology is going to get us out of all, all kinds of problems. Why is Jevons Paradox for you uh, then, uh, I guess, w one of the reasons why sustainability gets us into trouble? Well, it's interesting. You bring that up and, and I, uh, you make your, 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 your push me to make a connection I failed to make, but it's really... I'd say fundamental to, to this. Look, Jevons' paradox argues that, you know, he, he developed this in Britain at the beginning of the industrial ecology, and he, and he, and he argued that efficiency uh, leads to actually more consumption uh, because it, as, you, as you become more efficient, uh, you, there's more capital available to invest in other things and things don't do exactly what they think. He was arguing, he was basically writing about unintended consequences. I, I, I haven't really made that connection, but the, 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 that, that tech, when we act and when we, we, we get what we want more or less, but at the same time we produce other effects. Hmm. Technology always, almost always has unintended consequences. When you use something, you get perhaps what you want, but you produce other things. And that's really where, where I've come to with this la latest work is I, I, I say, look at uh, global change, almost all of these environmental bads that we would like to get rid of are unintended consequences of doing what we do normally. They're, they're, they just happen. We, we just happen to have been using fossil fuel for a long time, but oh my goodness, as we use it, we make this CO2 and it, and we never thought about it that way. And, and, and it, 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 you don't, until you get into a, a very uh, thorough systemic view, you don't make these connections. In, 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 in perhaps that's where industrial ecology and the whole idea of the connectedness of our global metabolism helped develop these ideas. But the problem you say, and I think some of us are starting to discover, is that even when we then try to address this, if we use 
too strict methodologies, we end up exactly where we started. At least this seems to be what you're saying. So ESG and CSR and all of these metrics that we are trying to develop, they fall very short of kind of a phenomenological understanding. You talk about Edmund Husserl's work and obviously Heidegger, but you, you, you bring back an analytical British philosopher, Whitehead, and his fallacy of misplaced concreteness when you're right. describing what happens to this ESG movement that is trying it's to very, just insert metrics. closely related. Why, why is this a problem? I mean, they're all related. So, so it's not good it. enough to try to make perfect metrics and say, well, we're polluting and, and here's how much we're polluting. We're going to pollute less and, and set targets. Well, why are you against this? I, I'm not against this. I say, you you know, I'm, I'm all for it. But my critique says is if you think you're going to stop this systemic emerging systems consequences, you're, 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 you're haven't thought deeply enough. But every, every, there is, I never, never say, don't try to be more efficient. But at the same time, I say, don't believe you're going to solve the problem. Hmm. The, 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 one of the few things I've written that seems to have stuck, and people know it comes from me, is a little sentence out of my first book, and it says, reducing unsustainability will not create sustainability. Sustainability is a systemic notion. It's about health. It's about the whole system working together. You're, and, and so, so you need to, to f- get to the very root cause. When a when a company becomes more efficient, they're 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 not dealing with that. They're dealing with a little tiny piece of it. And that 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 it, it, that I want to make it really clear: this is not a a diatribe against being more efficient. This is simply a critical. concern that it's insufficient to solve the very same problems they are thinking they are solving. Hmm. So I want to bring us to to this brain discussion because you were alluding to this, that uh, at certain point during your reflections, you discover this neuroscientist Ian McGilchrist, and he has a, a book from a decade ago called The Master and His Emissary, and he's just out with another tome of 1500 pages that I've been, uh, you know, scratching the surface of in in preparation for this. So, uh, but but to sort of to get there and figure out uh, how Ian McGilchrist fits into this picture, you you write about another German scholar, Habermas, and, you know, he talks about colonizing our life world. And for Habermas, you know, he's talking about communicative action and the possibility of communicating at all in this new world. And, you know, he is a German theorist. And but you relate this to the left brain or colonizing our life worlds, so to speak, since the yeah. Industrial Revolution. And this is, I guess, where you evoke Ian McGilchrist. Explain why Ian has become so important to you and the theory of flourishing. Okay. Well, you asked, <clears throat> I'm going to go refer back to the very beginning. You asked, how did I get here? Uh, and I, I said, look, it, 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 it's a series of sort of, of, of serendipitous steps. Um, <clears throat> but I started to, after Flourishing, the book I wrote, Flourishing, I started to write another book. <clears throat> I was really concerned with making the idea of flourishing more clear. And uh, 
um, I, I, I found some sources. They're, they're present in the latest book. And I wrote a manuscript and sent it to my, uh, the editor of my very first book, the Yale University Press. And as university presses do, they send it out for reviews. Well, the reviews were horrendous. She, my friend said, I'm sorry, we can't publish this. These reviews are just so bad. Uh, but uh, by the way, there are a couple of books in our catalog that I know you will enjoy reading. I'm going to send them to you. Well, guess what? One of those books was The Master and His Emissary. I never, never would have stumbled on this guy by myself. So I picked up this book. It's two, two and a half, three inches thick. And I he said, tends to write I'll, long I'll remember, books. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of look at it. Well, I started reading this book and the lights went on. Yeah. And that's what happened. I mean, this, 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 this book turned on the lights to begin to explain these, these puzzles I have been grappling with for a long well, time. Well, and he talks so, about left yeah. and right brain. Right. That much I get. And that relates back to kind of the homo economicus versus the homo curatens or the right. authentic being that you've been talking about here. What I don't get uh, from reading your book or from reading about uh, his book, because I haven't really read it, how I understand that, you know, brain research says that there are two parts of the brain, but explain to me how that becomes a cultural journey where the left brain has won out over the right brain. Well, how, how do you well, make that leap? How does he I didn't make, make that, that leap. leap. That's where, where McGilchrist, the author of these books, does. But yeah. when I picked up this book, and, and I, have to, uh, what, I think I, I mentioned this, but the, the very early work was uh, focused on to, uh, arguing that that what was necessary was a shift from this this sort of needy self-interested human being to a caring human being and when you read the first things you learn by by from from McGilchrist's model of the brain is that the right brain is the caring and the left brain is the needy mm -hmm. they, they they match this so this was this this aha my goodness this dichotomous view of human beings and the dichotomous view of so many things gets to be explained by, by the argument that when the right brain is the master, as his McGilchrist says, hmm. you are connected to the world, you're connected to the moment, you're capturing context, you're pragmatic, you're solving the problem as it looks right now. Whereas when you're operating out of the left brain, you're operating out of a set of theories of abstractions that have come from the past. You've lost the context. Mm -hmm. And that lost context means that you're very likely to create unintended consequences because that model fails to represent the reality of the moment. It represents some reality that you have created out of bits and pieces of the past. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it works. Right. So when things are familiar, when you get up in the morning, you've done the same thing over and over again. So your brain has got a picture. Your left brain knows everything, how to get to the bathroom, which toothpaste to use, and so forth. 
But when you're dealing with problems like climate change or even smaller problems that deal with human beings who are not mechanistic, who aren't the same from moment to moment, that left brain makes mistakes because it's not connected. It's it's looking at some some category, some generality. Mm-hmm. It it is it explains the the whole. For me, it's it's a, a, a an explanation of of why there's so much ism in the U.S. Racism, genderism, ageism. Because the, when the left brain sees a human being out there, they don't see that human being as a person at the moment. They see a picture of that their brain is telling them. Hmm. I guess so, this so for this me... Is immensely powerful way yeah. of beginning to try to unscramble things that, that, are, that are puzzling and have... Uh, and, and so for me, the whole idea of, 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 in, of, of, of environmental damage and the whole failure to see flourishing, which I see really is the human potential satisfied, gets cleared up or at least I, I, that sounds like everything falls into place. No, it, it becomes a lens in which things become increasingly clearer. Mm-hmm. And and in that, I guess this brings us to to the question of the future and the future outlook. Because you yeah. you write that the modern paradigm, and you know you evoke other thinkers than than McGilchrist. You you talk about Giddens and others who have described yeah. modernity and late modernity. And you say the modern paradigm is no longer suited for the present world and is not sufficient to turn us sustainable, which right. makes you, I guess, pessimistic. But then you don't. Uh, you're certainly not optimistic, but you, you you evoke Havel's definition of hope because right. you say, you know, you've been working on all these things over decades and you're not sure you've made progress or that the world's made progress, but you have the certainty that something makes sense regardless how it turns out. I found that powerful as, a, as an expression, um, but I want you to explain sort of this Kuhnian paradigm of modernity and the industrial world and how we can... How and when will we get out of this, in your view? Yeah. Well, well, well. A great deal of of um, uh, McGilchrist's first book is really two books. It's one that explains the divided brain model. He based that model on an immense data set, virtually every piece of evidence that you you can gather about what happens when one side of the brain has been disabled or affected. It's an, it's an extraordinary piece of, of, of work. The second half is sort of the consequences of that. And, and uh, that's where, where uh, he, he basically argues that, that um, the, the, uh, since the Enlightenment, sort of the beginning of, of, of modernity, a shift away from, from the, the previous uh, paradigmatic era, eras, the scholastic era, the, the dark ages, the, the, and so forth, uh, we became more literate. Science became the method for finding truth. Um, we became technologically dependent and so forth. All of these depend on the left brain, on the development of abstractions, 
Mm-hmm. Science is basically science. science the, 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 that's the normal science of Thomas Kuhn is an entirely left brain process. People are, are, are in fact, it, it, it demands that you follow rigidly rules. Right. Um, and so it, it, as this culture got more and more uh, involved in applying those methodologies, uh, as McGilchrist argues, the left brain being plastic has slowly gotten to be actually the dominant one, and it dominates modern cultures. Well, but the challenge then, John, do we have to get, because Kuhn also writes that these paradigms are incommensurable. It's a horrible word, very long, complicated. But do we then have to get rid of everything that we have built here, technology, science in the current conception? Because you say paradigm is not a logical step, but it's a leap. So what is that leap? Kuhn doesn't say that. Kuhn, when you when you go get into a new paradigm, it's right; it's incommensurate with the old. But you don't give up the old, right? Okay. You continue to do that, but you do it differently, and you do some things that you could not have done in the others. Right. So that's exactly what I'm arguing: that if we if we could recover the mastery of the right, we would begin to care. We would begin to act out of sort of. A, a, a pragmatic truth of how the world is. We would take climate change seriously. Mm-hmm. Everybody would. It wouldn't be just sitting there on the shelf, uh, sort of in, in denial. That that. Um, I mean, it's it's. I have. I can't guarantee this. It's 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 a gut feeling that if if we take care of things of people and of the world, we're going to do a hell of a lot better than use them. And, mm-hmm. and so this is a hopeful, that's why I, I, I avoid optimism, pessimism, that's a left brain notion of I th- think I can do this within some degree of blah, 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 blah. And that's why I stick with hope. It's hopeful that if we shift from our our utilitarian view of the world is something that's there for us to use to a world in which we are thrown and part of and care for, we will maintain it in, 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 in a way that, that brings it flourishing and us flourishing. It's a hopeful notion. I'm glad you say that because you also write uh, I don't know if that is hopeful, but you write about extinction as the opposite of flourishing. So flourishing must first emerge, and then we can speak meaningfully about sustaining it, you say. Well, and that, I, I guess, is a reminder that these are not jokes here. We're not talking about you know somewhat less sustainable than you think. You actually think there's a real risk that we're on a path to extinction if we don't make this paradigm leap. Well, I, did, I don't use... I mean, it's not quite the way I use extinction. It's really just more talking about the, uh, I forgot. Maybe you're right, but I don't know. Well, I don't know that you wrote that humanity will, will, you know, that will go extinct. But uh, but you do say that extinction is the opposite of flourishing. Um, Yeah, this is, is, well, in a a sense, it certainly is. If I I argue that, look, flourishing simply the, the, 
satisfaction, achievement of, of the potential. It has to do with all living things. Mm-hmm. But only humans have have this this existential dimension beyond the biologic. All, mm-hmm. all living creatures, including human beings, have a biological potential that's in their genes. But we have created this culture that, because we are social beings beyond the biological beings. There are other social beings, but they don't possess one of the key things we do. We have this powerful language. We have a different physiology that allows us, and we have a different cognitive structure. And that has let us create these cultures. We Flourishing means to, to be have two dimensions for me. One is we have to be coherent with that culture, you know, we, you can't just go off into into the forest all by yourself. I do not say that that's flourishing. But mm-hmm. we also have an authenticity. Each one of us is independent. And the other part of flourishing is achieving that wholeness. Mm-hmm. Well, that wholeness is achieved through the right brain by caring and, and, and listening to and empathetic relationships. And the left brain is the one that drives the social coherence. It's the one that knows the rules. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we need that balance, but we, we are out of balance, Tron. The, mm-hmm. the, the modern left brain is, 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 is taken over, and, and we, you know, we think we can solve everything by technology. We think science will ultimately tell us all the truths. We have great arguments over sort of can we ground morality and logic and so forth and so on. You know, but but the right brain is fighting. It, it's fighting a. It's a tough fight. Um, but you know, the one 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 sort of interesting example of, of where where it hadn't won, but the left didn't win either, was the 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 uh, the, the short, quick life of the logical positives in in philosophy. You know, they thought they could explain everything by by rational things. Well, it turns out they can't, and that's because the left brain cannot explain everything. There are just things out there that cannot be reduced to some kind of of category, to some kind of abstraction. John, these are fascinating, fascinating discussions. Yeah, it is. It's a wonderful. I mean, I I, I must say I've enjoyed this. It's pressed me. Um, I don't think I could ever have done this as an academic because we're forced to really stay within our disciplines, and that means stay within the rules the left brain has gathered and taught you. Hmm. Um, John, I'm 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 very thankful for uh, being brought on this path of flourishing with you, and uh, I hope we can uh, communicate more. Uh, yeah. But I guess we'll we'll close this conversation now. It's been a, a it's been a rich conversation, and uh, and I certainly will read more of your work, and uh, and also I guess m- more of the uh, book recommendations, of which there were so many in in, in your last. Yeah, well, <laughs> I have also drawn happy that we got together. Um, we're really neighbors. It turns out maybe we can uh, meet face to face. That would be great. Uh, uh, exercise the right brain even further than we can through this technological thing called computers and Zoom and 
That would be wonderful. One of the poems I wrote recently, and it actually got published in a, in a, a little art magazine, was called Zoom Tomb. And the title will tell you what I think about Zoom. <laughs> yeah, well, there are some sacrifices when we right. want to exercise another right, which is to be in our own preferred favorite place but uh, that's i think that takes us too far uh, for today but john thank you so much uh, for spending this time with me and with my uh, listeners at uh, futurist my pleasure my pleasure you have just listened to episode 158 of the futurist podcast with host Trunarne unheim futurist and author if you are interested in trans products of services feel free to check out futurist.org/store where you can book a keynote become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few trans books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. You can also check out more of Tron's projects on his website, trondundheim.com. The topic of this podcast was the real world beyond sustainability. And in this conversation, we talked about how reducing unsustainability still does not create whatever it is we agree should be sustained. My takeaway is that after it gained prominence with the Brundtland Report in the late 1980s, sustainability quickly became defined and operationalized as eco-efficiency without considering the important question of what it is that we want to sustain in the first place. That was convenient both for policymakers and for corporations, and was alluring to consumers too, but it is ultimately misguided. Instead, we need to embrace a different, more ambitious paradigm, which contains within it a normative vision for a better future, not just a form of managed ecological decline. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 52 on the future of peer-to-peer, episode 14 on post-pandemic tech, or episode 3 on the remaking of transportation. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, please let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Please... uh, Notice that finding us on social media is easy because we are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.